This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Sleep disorders in children are very common, even in infants, and problems with sleep are one of the most commonly discussed topics during well-child visits. It's estimated that up to half of all children have some difficulties with sleep, and about 4% have a formal sleep disorder diagnosis. It's really important for us to recognize this as untreated sleep problems in children have the potential to result in academic, behavioral, and developmental problems. So today we'll be discussing sleep problems in children with Dr. Robin Lloyd, a pediatrician and child sleep specialist from the Division of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine with a joint appointment with the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Robin, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. As a geriatrician, I don't know much about sleep problems in children, and I was doing reading to prepare for this, and I was amazed at how common this is. Mm -hmm. And as I was listening to the radio on the way in from work, I heard a commercial for melatonin for children. So that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that this was such a big problem. Yes, it is quite a problem and becoming more and more recognized as a problem. So is the sleep architecture in children the same as it is in adults with the different stages of sleep and REM sleep and so forth? So it's different across the ages. We know that in babies when they're first born, about half of their sleep is REM sleep. And in fact, they can enter sleep into REM sleep which is atypical for older children mm-hmm. and adults. As a child progresses through childhood and into adulthood, there becomes a decrease in REM, especially during the first year, and then over time a decrease in N3. We know that REM is very important for learning and for stimulating that part of the brain that helps with learning, and so we think that it's very important in the infant brain, and it's very important for learning across the the ages and three is important for memory consolidation and with time that also declines we know that sleep in general declines with age there tend to be more awakenings in adults there tend to be more difficulties falling asleep and staying asleep Um, we always describe the the infant sleeper as kind of the gold standard of sleep and unfortunately that does decline with age Mm -hmm. well how common is insomnia in children so it's quite common in in across the the childhood uh, period it ranges from 25 to 50 percent depending on the type of problem in the earlier ages there tend to be more problems with behavior and behavioral insomnias um, as the child matures we tend to see more problems with circadian uh, differences especially into teenagehood where there's a a natural delay in the circadian rhythm. Some people perceive that as insomnia because they want their child to still go to sleep at, say, eight or nine, but when you're a teenager, your circadian rhythm delays about two hours, and so it's hard to fall asleep Mm -hmm. before 10 or 11. And so 
Some people will classify that as insomnia, but it's a little bit different problem. But across childhood, we, we estimate about 25 to 50% of children will have problems with sleep or insomnia at one time or another. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. I know in the adult population, insomnia is a very common complaint mm -hmm. that I hear. Mm -hmm. And as I explore it, um, I find a lot of people have difficulty either falling asleep or staying asleep because things constantly go through their mind right. and often related to their work or their business. Yes. Uh, is that similar to children? Or do they have things constantly going through their mind thinking well, about uh, issues? Yes, that can be an issue, mind activation. And unfortunately, one of the issues we're dealing with now is the um, infusion of electronics into our society. And of course, kids are rampant users of electronics mm -hmm. and those tend to be mind activating and stimulating as well and very uh, maladaptive for sleep they're just not at all helpful hmm. are there medical problems that kids can have that result in difficulty with sleep absolutely so we we talked a little about behavioral issues but there can be underlying genetic or syndromic problems. We know that kids who have autism spectrum or are on the autism spectrum have more problems settling, staying asleep. There can be, you had mentioned melatonin, irregularities of melatonin secretion associated with mm -hmm. certain conditions. Um, we know that there are certain underlying genetic conditions that can predispose to uh, more issues with breathing, such as Down syndrome. We know that there's a high incidence of obstructive sleep apnea that can interfere with sleep um, maintenance. Lots of underlying medical chronic conditions. So children with sickle cell or cystic fibrosis tend to have more issues with sleep as well. Mm -hmm. With uh, your generally healthy, normally developing child, the biggest issue with sleep apnea would be in the two to six year olds when we see enlargement of the tonsils and adenoids where we'll see an increased incidence of sleep apnea and unfortunately now as our childhood population our population in general is getting more obese mm -hmm. but with uh, kids getting more obese as well we're seeing more problems with sleep apnea related to obesity as mm. well you mentioned sleep apnea, and as I was reading, I was I was surprised to hear that children have some of the same sleep disorders yeah. that many adults have that I assumed developed later in life. Right. But sleep apnea, yeah. restless leg syndrome, those things can occur in children. Absolutely, yes. So the incidence of um, sleep apnea, we, we quote around 2 to 6% hmm. in, in childhood. Um, certainly, if there is an underlying craniofacial or neuromuscular genetic or syndromic problem, it can be much higher than that. But around 2 to 6% for kids uh, usually associated with tonsil and adenoid hypertrophy, typically in that 2 to 6-year-old group. But again, you can have another spike or you can have persistence in those kids who are obese. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the clues we get in adults is that they snore loudly. Mm -hmm. and is that similar in children? So we always call it baby snoring. So kids uh, don't have the rattle the wall, grizzly bear mm -hmm. kind of snoring that, for instance, my father has. Right. <laughs> um, but they can have more subtle, heavy breathing. And of course, it's more prominent in REM. And we know that REM sleep occurs more in the second half of the night. So unfortunately, it can be unrecognized because parents may see the children after they've tucked them in and they've gone back to check on them. But in the second half of the night, they may not see that sure. they're having as many as, as much difficulty as they are. They may not recognize that. Sometimes the signs are more subtle, so it can just be heavy breathing, 
mouth opening, things that we call airway protective maneuvers, so neck hyperextension to try and help open up the airway, and then a preference to sleep off the back. So while some mothers may come in and say, or parents may come in and say, oh, my child looks so cute, he always sleeps with his bottom up, that's actually a red flag for us because really? that can be a, an airway protective maneuver that telling us that he's avoiding his back. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What are other ways that uh, children with sleep problems may get recognized? I, I imagine falling asleep in class or in uh, other areas. So what's tough is kids who are receiving insufficient sleep or who have a sleep disorder, oftentimes they go the other way. So if you go up to Ganda 17 and, and check out our waiting room, you'll see the adults are indeed dozing and and Mm -hmm. nodding off, but the children are doing cartwheels and jumping off the tables, and so they tend to be overactive and and impulsive and have difficulties with focusing and inattention. And so sometimes these kids will um, be recognized because they're having attention and behavioral problems. And so um, certainly every child who is being considered for ADHD should certainly have a sleep history obtained by their primary care physician because we know that kids can have symptoms that clearly mimic ADHD when it's actually either insufficient sleep or poor quality of sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, since it is so common, Mm -hmm. should pediatricians and family physicians be screening children for sleep problems? Well, I may be biased, but I certainly think so, because I think not only can kids have problems with inattention, with behavior, with impulsivity, school difficulties, but they can also have mood problems, they can have anxiety, depression, they can have growth problems, either obese or, and the younger kids will see more failure to thrive or poor um, growth. It can cause a lot of family distress, and Mm -hmm. so I think it's absolutely imperative that um, primary caregivers do screen for sleep disorders. Unfortunately, there have been studies showing that oftentimes that doesn't occur. There's so much that has to happen within a well-child check that sometimes people don't get to sleep, and yet we know in children it's such a significant part of their day. Sometimes it's a half of their day or more is spent in sleep. And so if there's a problem, that's going to affect the other half of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm sure pediatricians and family physicians visits are becoming shorter, just like ours. So yes. are there two or three questions that they might ask that are really pretty uh, likely to come up with the correct answer? So there was a nice screening tool that Judy Owens um, published several years back now, but it's it's um, called the BEARS screening tool mm-hmm. for sleep disorders in children. And it's an acronym that stands for the B is bedtime problems. So is it hard for the child to go down? Is there a protracted bedtime? E is for excessive daytime sleepiness or excessive activity. Um, a is for awakenings. How many occur? How are they handled? How long is the child awake? R is for regularity and duration of sleep. So how much sleep is a child actually getting? Are they a teenager where they're trying to push through the week, but then on the weekends they stay up until two in the morning and sleep until two in the afternoon? So regularity and duration. And then S is snoring. Mm -hmm. And um, as we had mentioned, snoring is is kind of a nice screening tool for sleep apnea. You know, there are some um, other things, as I mentioned, that, that we can't always just count on people recognizing snoring. And mm-hmm. so 
um, along with snoring, do they do they have evidence of airway protective maneuvers? But those are basic screens that I think are pretty quick and easy, and and I think efficiently screened for most sleep disorders. Sure. Mm-hmm. In general, do we know if our children are getting adequate sleep? Are they in is a group sleep deprived? So yes, I think as a society, both adults and children are sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Um, the CDC came out with a warning. Now it's been a few years back saying that um, this is indeed a public health emergency mm-hmm. because our our society is sleep deprived and it has significant impact on long-term chronic illness and chronic disease and so um, definitely as a society we are and indeed children um, in general um, tend to be receiving insufficient sleep the biggest group in childhood would be teenagers in one study, only about a third of teenagers were receiving sufficient sleep opportunity. In another study, only about 15% were. And so we know this is a huge problem, especially in that teenage population. And there have been some efforts to try and help alleviate some of the, the strain. Uh, one of the big issues is early school start times. Yeah. And so we know that if there's a natural shift in the circadian rhythm, so that the child can't fall asleep before, say, 10.30. If we're asking them to be to school at 7.40, then they probably have to get up around 6 or mm-hmm. 6.30. And just innately, there's a built-in insufficient sleep opportunity. And so there's there was a big recommendation, uh, I'm sorry, a recommendation published by the American Academy of Pediatrics um, a couple years ago recommending that there, that schools should not start before 8.30 for middle schoolers and high schoolers. In pockets of the country and pockets within our state where they've implemented this, there's been much improved school attendance, better interactions with uh, peers and adults, improvement in test scores. I mean, just across the board, it it, it only makes sense Mm -hmm. to do this. And unfortunately, um, there are a lot of barriers to implementing this, and so, this is one of those things we continue to advocate for, but hopefully it will occur. So in it really the near hasn't future. taken hold to it. It has extent. not. No, there are a lot of um, issues in implementing and, sure. and switching schedules around. So yeah. that's that's I think a group we really need to keep working on and mm-hmm. targeting. Well, in some of the reading I was doing, I came across the term behavioral insomnia. Sure. What exactly is that? So when we think of behavioral insomnia, we, we usually relate that to the younger children where there are um, a couple of issues. Sometimes they have a sleep onset association, and sometimes it's simply related to limit setting. The sleep onset association is that child who the parents say never sleeps through the night, and, and this is beyond six months when we would expect them to sleep through the night. And when we get a history, what happens is the the parents feeding, rocking, holding, and then as soon as the child goes to sleep, then they try and gently transition them to their crib, Mm -hmm. only to have the child wake up because they're associating sleep with their parent rocking, holding, feeding them. And so they really don't know how to transition to sleep independently. And so when they naturally have an arousal overnight, which everyone does even when their sleep is, is perfect, they'll arouse a handful of times, if they don't know how to manage that, then naturally it's, what do I do? I mm-hmm. need my parent to rock and hold and, and feed me. And so, so there's that association with sleep transition. 
we usually see that in, in the younger kids, more less than three. Um, beyond that, we see limit setting, whereby oftentimes the parents will describe, yes, we have a wonderful bedtime routine. We read a couple of books and, and we sing a couple of songs and say some words of assurance. And then two hours later, the child's still awake because they do what we call curtain calls. Mm-hmm. They come out, I need a hug, I need a drink, I need to tell you one more thing, I need to oh, now I have to go to the bathroom, and then it all starts over again. And so oftentimes there are protracted behaviors that, that uh, push back the child falling asleep. And instead of the fer- parents setting limits and expectations and saying, it's bedtime, mm-hmm. I love you, stay in your bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that can be an issue as well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, that can definitely protract bedtime and also cut into the, the sleep opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so with so many children um, spending the day outside of the home as their, as their parents work, oftentimes um, they have to be awakened at an earlier hour than, than they're ready to be awakened. So if we're cutting off their nights both at the, uh, I'm sorry, at the tail end of the night and then they're protracting their bedtime to try and engage their parent, then that ends up with uh, resulting in insufficiency mm. as well. Well, let's talk about dreaming. Dreamings mm-hmm. have, dreams have always fascinated sure. me, and uh, I still have one where I'm about to take a final exam in college and realize <laughs> I never went to any of the classes. Um, so that's a nightmare to me. But yeah. Do children have a lot of dreams, nightmares, sleep terrors? So, so nightmares and sleep terrors are, are, are different, and so let's talk about nightmares okay. first. So, so nightmares typically are out of REM sleep, and so in children, they can have very vivid dreams with recollection. Um, most of the time, though, they, they, they don't have a lot of recollection unless it's scary. And what's interesting is that we see the um, number of nightmares tied to anxiety. So if we, if kids are reporting a lot of nightmares, a lot of sleep fragmentation related to um, nightmares, so they, by definition, a nightmare is, is a dream that wakes you from sleep. It's, it's frightening. There's recollection. You have a hard time returning to sleep because mm-hmm. of it. And there's this strong association with anxiety. And so oftentimes if we hear about a lot of sleep fragmentation related to nightmares, we, we screen for anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. Sleep terrors, on the other hand, so we'll see nightmares since they're in REM sleep more in the second half of the night. Sleep terrors are typically what we call a non-REM parasomnia, so they occur out of non-REM, usually stage N3. So we were talking about sleep architecture before. There's non-REM sleep, which takes up about 75% of the night, and there's REM sleep that takes up about 25% of the night, just general numbers. With and three, it's usually about 20 to 25 percent of the night. And in children, it's the majority of it occurs in the first third of the night. And so um, usually the, the typical story is that, oh boy, two hours after I put them down, I'll hear screaming and carrying on. And, and what's different is that the child really isn't awake. When you look at the EEG, there's still good slowing. And um, so it's a partial arousal, usually from the steep stage of sleep. 
where they don't have recollection. And unfortunately, with the sleep tears, they look very distressed. I mean, they're usually sweaty and having autonomic responses with racing heart and red face and crying and really agitated. And despite the parents trying to comfort and, and settle them, they don't respond. And so they're still in, in, they're more asleep than awake. And what's interesting is they have no recollection of this in the morning. Mm -hmm. So it tends to be very distressing to the family, mm -hmm. yet um, the child isn't has no recollection whatsoever. And, and even in older children, they'll say, "Oh, I I didn't do that. Are you are you teasing me?" And so, um, so basically, there there are these phenomena that can occur out of N three usually in the first third of the night that are very distressing to the family, but not to the child. What's interesting is that a, a major trigger for parasomnias would be sleep deprivation. And so in kids who aren't receiving sufficient sleep, they, the body tends to, the brain tends to rebound by going for the good stuff, so going into that deep sleep. So we'll see more um, parasomnias in kids who are sleep mm -hmm. deprived. Um, usually there's a family history. But what we screen for is if there's a primary sleep disorder that may be leading to partial arousal, such as sleep apnea, where a child is maybe having a little snort that partially arouses them, and then they bounce into this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So, Or periodic limb movements yeah. um, in sleep, something that may cause a partial arousal and lead them to have these events. Do you see sleepwalking in children? Yes, we do. In fact, <laughs> the, the uh, children are, are the group where we see most of these parasomnias. Now, certainly they can persist into childhood, but um, in one study out of Canada, this was several years back, they followed kids longitudinally um, in their single-payer system, and, and they found that about 90% of kids had had at least one parasomnia, whether it was sleepwalking, mm -hmm. um, sleep terrors, um, over the course of their lives. And um, so it's very common. Now, the sleep terrors, what's interesting is we tend to see those in a little bit younger age, so more less than five, more common in the less than five-year-olds, whereas the sleepwalking um, tends to be more in the five to ten-year-olds. Um, kids who have had sleep tears often go on to have sleepwalking as well. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I know with the adult population, we spend a lot of time trying to deal with patients who want sedative hypnotics for sure. sleep and other products. Uh, what about children? Are there yeah. pharmacotherapy for insomnia that you prescribe? Well, we certainly get a lot of requests. I'm sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, we well, I should say, fortunately, really, there there are no FDA approved sleep aids for children. Okay, so that's always the start of the discussion. Mm -hmm. There are no FDA approved sleep aids because behavioral problems are so prevalent and usually the most common cause of insomnia in childhood. We really focus on the behavioral issues first because if a child is in their room and has a TV playing and they're looking at their screen and um, and they have a computer on one side and their phone on the other, and yet there's a request for a sleep aid, that just doesn't make a lot right. of sense. And so, so we really try and focus on behavioral issues, on sleep hygiene, and in your normally developing child, they should be sleeping well with modifications of behavior, mm -hmm. ensuring sufficient activity level during the day. Um, I have a friend who, who laughs and he said, I grew up as a farmer. I never had problems sleeping. Mm -hmm. And there is something sure. to be said for that. I mean, if you're active and busy during the day, 
absolutely you sleep better at night. So we, we try and focus on, on non-pharmacologic approaches. But now that being said, there are times when we do need to tailor specific regimens. Now certain groups just have more difficulty sleeping, the autistic kids, um, kids with Angelman syndrome, so specific genetic syndromes. And so um, usually our first line in the neurodevelopmental kids are kids who are known to have lower levels of melatonin or erratic melatonin secretions will recommend melatonin supplementation as a first line. Then we look at pharmacologic medications that will treat specific problems that we're dealing with. So if we're dealing with periodic limb movements that are causing sleep fragmentation and arousal, then we tailor our treatment towards that individual problem. But in general, no, we don't, we don't just mm-hmm. offer sleep aids. They're not recommended in children. Well, we've been discussing sleep problems in children with Dr. Robin Lloyd, a pediatrician and sleep specialist in children from the Mayo Clinic. Robin, I could go on for a long time here. You've, you've taught me a lot, and uh, we're going to have to have you back because I can think of a whole bunch more questions to ask. So awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You can listen to a variety of primary care topics on previously recorded episodes of Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. You can find them all at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.